Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. More stories you are not going to believe. And advice that you didn't know that you needed. Five stars. Five and a half stars. We're creating a legacy one call at a time. Here comes my daddy. Your problem is, is that you like me. My dad is my hero. He'll always be there to take your call, and you'll never be in too much trouble if your dad is around. Oh, boy. Hey, hey, hey. I think I'm a pretty cool dude. Better call daddy. The safe space for controversy. This is your host, Rena Friedman-Watts. No, this is your host, Celia Watts. More inspirational stories, more daddy drama, and more laughs. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> in the winter of 2014, Roger Cabler came to believe that he was possessed by the wild spirit of Robin Williams. He felt his pain, he felt his frustration, and he has played many roles, including working alongside Carol Burnett and having his own sitcom. Roger Cabler, welcome. How do you make a real movie? I've made a couple. Oh, my friend is here. One is called Clueless. I had one line on Clueless and that like incredible setup. When you have money, you have millions of people around. And it's it's this like incredibly elaborate thing with trailers and people and dancers and actors and weird people like me that are he neither here nor there. I got into Clueless because I was a friend of the directors. So she said, you want to be in my movie? So she gave me a little part. It really is who you know, huh? Yeah, but once you know somebody, you better be able to do something. And I sucked in that movie. I just like, dude, they look really bad. Like me right now. I felt so stupid. I got one line. My hair was good, though. My hair was brilliant. Your hair is still good. Thanks. I got a, I got a little bit left, but not much. This is Jufro. It's Alfalfro. So I want to show you something. This is really exciting. This is I got this for my last movie. This is my best actor award. And it's an ashtray. It's it's an award. It's an ashtray. It's an award. I just like to mitigate things like that. Dual purpose. Oh my God. That's crazy. And it's anonymous if you want it to be. Oh my God. You ha- you almost had me convinced until that came off. No, this is a real acting award, but it's so cheesy that plate comes off. I'm an actor, a real actor. But they send you these and you're going, well, why did this pop off like that? I actually, when I taped it, it became a real award. Uh, wow. I'd like to- I'd like to thank Better Call Daddy for having me on today with my gold-plated award for a movie that I did a long time ago. I, I don't know what else to say. Do you have any questions for me? Yeah, so you and I connected through our mutual connection, Nanny Yvonne. Nanny Yvonne, my cousin, yeah. Yes. Nanny Yvonne. So, so yeah, I was grateful to her that she did this for us. So cool. You guys are cousins. We are. She's, she married into the family, but she's in the movie, too, and she plays herself. I can't wait to see that cameo. So I want to talk a little bit about your daddy. Was he an actor? My daddy. How'd you know about my daddy? Did you find out? Did you dig in a little bit? I dug in a little bit. Okay. He was an actor. We did a couple things together in Guys and Dolls. And a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. We had duets. We sang together. And he was in my last film, Who the Hell is Bobby Loose? And he played my dad. And we did a scene that was just devastating because I said things to him in that scene that I'd want to say to him my whole life, but I couldn't until we were acting. And it was incredible to have that. And the Variety magazine said his performance was touching. And he he died before the movie came out, but he would have been very proud. 
Oh my God. What an unbelievable opportunity though. Well, I asked him to be in the film. I played an impressionist who goes mad and calls his dad to help him just get on his feet. I said, dad, I'm not okay. I started to explain the, the, the path that I was on and all this pressure to be this performing monkey. And he, he said, I just wanted you to be happy. I wanted you to do what you were good at. And then ultimately he ends up holding me. And, and it was a very real, very raw movie. And he was wonderful. It was good to be able to, to work with him like that. My dad. I'm so sorry. Oh my gosh. I just, I don't even know what to say to that. It's a celebration. I mean, in, in a way to be able to finish a life with an understanding between us that was actually captured on film. Things we couldn't say to each other in life. But when we're improvising, and what he said to me was so profound. You got to see this film. It's the last film I did that I produced. He bared his soul. And he was always kind of a schmachter, like a community theater actor, you know. But in this, he was, I told him how much, and as a child, he, he, my mom pushed me into show business. And, and they just, look what my son can do. Look at him, look at him go. And it's all about bragging and look what he does. And, and, and I said, look, look where I am now. I've gone mad. You know, he's like, I didn't mean to push you. I just wanted you to be happy. I wanted you to do what you were good at. And it was so real. Every time I see that scene, I cry because he meant it. Out of all the bull crap acting that we, I've done some too. He meant it. He tried to get through to me and say, no, that's not who I am. That's not what I wanted. And he said, my parents, I wanted to be an actor and they wouldn't let me go to dramatic school. They made me go to business school. And they never came to see what I was, the, the plays that I was in. And he didn't want that for me. And it was just one of the great things about doing this kind of film is that you have a chance to work that way. And, and being Robin, the movie that I've just finished, is the same way. It's very autobiographical. It's very personal. I brought people into my life that have meaning. We hashed out some stuff. We lived on camera. It was a scene that I did with my ex-girl. We did after we broke up. That was actually very real in the film. The girl in the film, Elena Rogers, we were going together at the time and I asked her to do the role and she was terrific in the film. She really anchored it emotionally. And then we broke up, we were in different places, our family, but we still had one more scene to do. And when I asked her, are you coming back? She goes, I have to think about it. And it was, that creates the reality. But after the phone call and after the scene, we were like, that was pretty good. Do you want to do another one? It was like, yeah, we'll do another one. And she, oh, it's just, it's a great way to work. It's very cinema verite, very improvisational, very semi-documentary. I call it genre fluid because it's neither here nor there. You know? This is what you're saying is so amazing and interesting. Did you really want to be an actor or do you think your dad made you want to be an actor? Well, I, I have interest everywhere. Early on, I guess I showed a little bit of the old ham. So they would trot me out and show me musicals. They're very into the theater and the arts. So they exposed me to the arts. So I'm actually a, a painter as well, as it turns out, and a comic and a writer. And I work with my hands and just, I used to be a fisherman, a variety of things, but they did lean me into that. And when I was 11, I was in a professional production of The King and I at a dinner theater with equity actors. And that was very glamorous. It's that first hit of the real showbiz. And it was so, look at these wonderful performers. They dance and they sing and they're, they're opera and they're incredible performers. And I'm just like, ah, day by day, you know, I was just like this little kid, but Eventually, I, I clawed my way into finding what I was, where I could really perform and do. And that was impressions. 
For me, it was doing impressions. I just had a natural tendency. I'm a method comedian. I, I, when I go into characters, I, go, I really find out what makes Robert De Niro tick so that I can behave like that, not just make a mug. His attitude towards other people. What does studying an actor look like for you? It's like doing any character. It's a great question. Being an impressionist is being an actor who happens to do famous people. Or, you know, you're not really building a character. You are downloading a character into you so that you can, you can project it back into the world. And some of the great performances of impressions of Jim Carrey in uh, Man on the Moon when he did Andy Kaufman. You know that one? I don't, but do it. <laughs> well, no, he just really personified Andy Kaufman. It was a great... And I see that Jamie Foxx is doing Mike Tyson and it's scary, that look in his eye. He got it. Joaquin Phoenix doing Johnny Cash. These guys really got into, and oh, the best was Anthony Hopkins doing Richard Nixon. Somehow or other, he managed to accompany it. I don't know how he did it, but when you're watching and he doesn't look like him or sound like him, but somehow he became Nixon. Essence. You've become Nixon before, right? I am not Nixon. Yeah, I did Rich Little's Nixon. When I was a kid, I used to watch Rich Little. And then I do Columbo. I, I used to do Columbo. I, I drive my mom crazy. I'd walk around the house. Mommy, can I ask you? She would, would you please leave me alone? Okay. I'm sorry. Well, one thing. And then she would just be like, I'm doing the dishes. What do you want? I just, that's how you get attention. Ask any comedian. Mine was, I do Marlon Brando. And I try to make the faces. I really try to make the faces work. And then Robin Williams came along when I was 17. And it was all on, oh, man. I'm like, that's me. That's who I aspire to be. Yeah, so Robin Williams has been in the works for you for a long time. Since I was 17. And I remember absorbing his behavior. So even so, when I was in school, in high school, I, I had that sort of shyness. I, I'd like, I really like to take you out. You know, just that sort of innocence that it just came over me. And, ever, and now I'm 60. And now I finally made a movie about how Robin affected me from the time I was 17. And when he passed, something got into me that, was extreme empathy. And that's the film being Robin addresses it. And I experienced what it must have been like for him being Robin Williams and then losing that. And the reaction that I had as a human being was I started doing what I did when I was 17. I started behaving like Robin all the time. I was like, oh, excuse me. And I felt possessed. I mean, the possession really occurred that night when I experienced his death. And that is reenacted in the movie. It was intense. It was a spiritual experience, but a really dark one. And from there, the movie springs into a much more fun place because he manifests in me and I, I go with it and create a show that I take all over the country and people feel Robin and they, you know, they get into, it brings people together. And so then, I, you know, I made a movie about this show that I created called Being Robin, which is a lot of pieces of the show that I created are in the movie and shows the progression of when I first started doing Robin in the clubs to where I ended up in a place like a big theater. There's a lot of clips from actual performances in it. And there's clips from interviews like this, where I'm talking about what it's like to be Robin and how it manifests. I'm also bipolar in case the chatty thing was a mystery and I get the crazy phone and everything. So it's been quite a journey. I'm tired and my voice is shot. I just came back from Canada from a tour. Tell me about Canada and the tour. What is it like to be on stage? Well, the first one was the Imperial Theater in Nova Scotia. It was 500 people. And 
I threw everything I had into that performance. And then I had five or six more to do. So you have to kind of regroup and find the energy. To do Robin Williams is exhausting. And to think like him, oh my God, what are we doing now? It's just things happen in front of you and you have to do what Robin would do, which is just be this human computer that sort of makes hay out of it you know, spins it into comic gold. So I try to do the best I can with that. But I also have a routine that's, it's kind of set things that I talk about. But some, a lot of it's improvised and I just let the spirit go through me and do what it's going to do. That is very interesting. What's your relationship yeah. with God? My relationship with God, it's pretty good. I'm not always well behaved. I don't know what I'm getting for Hanukkah. <laughs> I, I have a comedic view of it, but I also had a deeply spiritual experience when I got sober, very spiritual. And I, I got in touch with God got in touch with me, whatever my creator is called God. And I felt launched into a new life because I had been very troubled by drugs and alcohol, gambling, cigarettes, all kinds of addictions. And I finally got sober around this spiritual experience, which was basically, I had been lost for a number of years in Hollywood and, and all that. My career was going down the tubes. And this is very well documented in being Robin. And I ended up on drugs and in the psych ward and I had to get sober and I kind of forgot the question. Your relationship with God. Oh yeah. So when I finally did get sober, I felt that I had been a lost child who finally got reunited with their parents. And that hug that you get from being reunited with your parents, that hug from the inside that I got from whatever that was just took me into a new life. I was witnessing my deliverance into a new life, watching yourself being born. And that's what they say, born again. But, you know, it's and for some people, it's it's like that spiritual awakening where you suddenly feel the goodness in you again, where I hadn't felt it for so long. Amazing. I love that that's part of the story of being Robin. Well, I don't go too much on that, but I do talk about what it was like before I got sober and after. I think that's another film. The important thing is that hmm. set me on my feet on another path, getting away from Hollywood and getting into the spirituality of painting and being a sort of channel for that creativity. And then when Robin passed, it all changed. And I, I ended up back in show business because he wanted me to. I felt this intense pulling by Robin's spirit to go back to work. I need you. I need to get back to work. You're the only, he saw me do him about 15 years ago on a TV show. Robin really likes my impression of him. So if there's any truth to this spiritual event, Robin somehow got in touch and said, I, I need, I'm not done yet. I need to do more. So I went out and made a show and people like Cindy Williams was his friend from Laverne and Shirley. When she saw me perform, she said, I felt Robin. And I said, well, that's what I aimed to do to get, put you in touch. It's weird. It was, sometimes they say to people, it's not just a show, it's a seance. And I mean it, you know, <laughs> there's a spiritual component to it, but it's, it's sweet. And it's, it's also pretty naughty in places. Cause Robin was. Robin was naughty. Oh my God. Have you ever seen his standup? Not too much of it. Well, his first HBO special, people are yelling him to do more, do more. And he goes, not tonight. This is a special time. And he grabs his crotch. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And he was very naughty. And he said things when talking about the priests and the, you know, the violations of children in the church. And he goes, remember, it's not just a sin, it's a felony. His social commentary was equally matched with his that genius sort of way of looking at things. And, you know, find the priest, find the pedophile, find the priest, find the pedophile. He'd make fun, but it was also 
very pointed towards that disturbing aspect of society. And he would, he's the jester. He would take, you know, something deeply disturbing and see and see how we could understand it through another lens. And to try to recreate that's tricky. Oh my gosh, I can't imagine. Have you tried to contact any of his family members or have you researched any of them? Well, sure. I've stayed. I feel like they're my own family because I was aware of when he was going to have a baby, his first child. And he talked about it in his act and what it was like to be a new father. When I went to make the movie, I wrote letters to his widow, Susan, and to his older son, Zach. And I said, look, whether you get, I hope you get this, but I'm going to make a movie about Robin. And I'm not using any footage of him or his voice in it at all, as per his wish. Secondly, it's a love letter to Robin. It's not meant to hurt anybody. It's meant to bring people together. And it's it's a tribute. And I didn't hear back from Zach at all. I don't know if he got that letter. I knew how to reach him, but I never heard back. And I did know Susan through a friend, through a friend, through a friend. And I heard back that she was too busy to deal with anybody else's crap. She was making her own documentary about Robin. So I basically went ahead and did this, not knowing if anything that I was doing would hurt them. Because when you hear somebody's gone and made a movie about a guy who thinks he's possessed by Robin Williams, what the hell is that? You know, if you're his family or his friends, but I do have support from a couple of his best friends. Rick Overton is one of them. He's the one that told me Robin liked my impression. And he loved the movie and a couple of his other friends. And look at, I'm not pursuing anybody. This is my business. I'm not pushing myself out on his family. I don't need to do that. This is something I did to be able to connect with people, bring people together and understand what happened to me, why I felt possessed. And the question and the mystery remains, was it a spiritual event or is it my mental illness that created a delusion that I was harboring his spirit? You decide. You're going to see the movie and decide for yourself what happened. Is that answered in the movie? I'm not saying <laughs> I drop hints in the movie. If you look carefully, there's clues, but it's not really about that. You, you do wonder and people have watched the movie multiple times and they've, I've talked to people. I don't know. They said, we went home and talked about your movie for hours. What the hell happened? And I love that. It doesn't have to be like a laugh riot and it's not. There's some funny stuff in the movie because it's stand up, but the movie is essentially a drama. It's essentially a deep psychological exploration of, of an event that occurred. And I watch it and I st- even now I'm thinking about it and then I experienced his death. That's not what the movie's about, but I wasn't going to make anything but a lovely, fluffy movie about Robin. And I couldn't. You can't. If you don't look at what the joy came out of, of the grief that it came out of, then you don't get the joy. It's the dark and light. So I put that in there. And all the struggles that I had with mental illness are in there too. It's interesting because Robin has a manic episode in the film. We played it out. It's on Halloween too. It's kind of interesting. I'm not going to say too much. I don't know if you're going to show the trailer or not, but uh, can you show the trailer on this cast? Or I could probably insert it on the YouTube channel. Whatever you want to do. My website is beingrobinthemovie.com. If you go to that, as of November 1st, you can buy the movie either e-link or a, D- a signed DVD. Remember, I'm DVD, definitely doing that. Slide it in there and we're having it made. And for Christmas, everybody, what a great gift. And ultimately, it's a very joyous celebration of Robin Williams' life and work. What did you learn about yourself in putting together this movie? That's a great, you're really good. Can I just stop for a second and say, wow. Thank you. Oh, you, gosh, you learn a great deal about tenacity. 
and what you're made of. You know, I didn't know what I was doing. I've never done this. I've done a movie with somebody holding my hand who did all the shooting and the editing. And I, I kind of chipped in and I kind of produced and I helped with the directing and I starred in it. This one, I did everything um, and I shouldn't have. But <laughs> you, you don't want to do that. You know, you don't you do, you don't want to do everything. But I ended up doing the editing, too. And it took me two years from the time I opened the computer and my friend John said, hit that button there. That makes it go to the very last. I worked on this for two years and I went through five or six editors who were all very skilled, but didn't get what I was trying to do. I was trying to edit the film as if Robin was editing it and directing it, which means it's a little messed up. It's just slightly off, man. You know, it's not going to be just like everything else you see. The movie's really unusual and it's not crisp and clean the way everything's high definition. And some of the sounds a little bit like a 1970s, you know, sort of Led Zeppelin album with the hisses and pops because I like that. I'm not a big modernist. Look behind me. Look at the antiques, man. Okay, that's my stuff. Oh, just to have some fun with it. So I, I, what I learned was you keep going. You know, if you have a passion and you don't let people take the power out of it, you don't let people dissuade you. If you have a vision, you got to go with it. And even if you fall on your ass, you know, you can get up and go, I made a mistake. I better listen. And I do listen to people. I better. So I took advice. I learned how to, you know, edit sound. And, but a lot of it was this incredibly organic monkey with a typewriter kind of learn, you know, the monkey writing Shakespeare. It's like, and then, you know, two years later, it's like, I knew that. <laughs> that can be a painful way to learn. Oh, yeah. But look, Rena, it's the intuition. You learn a little bit and then you go, oh, I can Google how to t- a tutorial eh, and get some help. But the intuitive part of it, like anything, is, is the instincts from thousands of maybe millions of years of chromosomes and DNA instructing your instincts about what to do next. And you wait for instruction. You don't learn it in a book anymore. And I'm an artist and I didn't learn art. I learned it from in here. And it takes twice, three, 10 times as long to get a result. But what you end up with is something completely original. Mm. And that's what I'm after. So yeah, that's why I look like my grandmother. (laughs) But I actually love that so much. That's really inspiring. When did you figure out you were an artist? When did you start calling yourself that? I think I'm more of a craftsman. You know, I think... God's the artist and I'm laying the bricks. I wait for the instructions. Oh, that's a good idea. You, okay, what do you want me to? All right, yeah, we'll do that. Because if I started taking credit for creating, my head would, you know, be like, hi. <laughs> I think I just have to let God be the artist and I help. That keeps me right sides. I say, what do you want me to do? I'll do it. Well, I want you to cut that scene because it's stupid. I have to cut that scene? Well, I think you should. Everybody says it sucks. Maybe you should listen. All right, you're right. We'll cut that scene. Tell me what didn't make the cut. What didn't make the cut was the little boy. <laughs> I feel bad. But the idea was that in the movie, my girl couldn't get pregnant. This is a big plot point we cut. And we wanted to have a child and we couldn't. And that made, it was very clear until, until Robin showed up in my life. And all of a sudden, and you don't learn to the end of the movie till this kid pops up from behind a rock and he kind of looks like Robin. You go, oh, it's it's astronaut's wife. It's the alien implant. 
she could have a baby with Robin because we had the one night thing. <laughs> we abandoned that plot big time. But the kid still shows up in the credits because he's cute and he looks like Robin. But that plot point had to go. So in case you're looking for the little Robin Jr., it didn't happen. And everybody said that's really creepy. <laughs> so it didn't. And I listened. I'm like, you're right. It was a thought. I don't know. You have to listen, though. You can't be this egomaniac who shuts everybody else's ideas out because people have wonderful ideas. And I don't care who has them. I'm working with this lady over here who's never edited a thing in her life, but she's the greatest. That's Madeline. Hey, she's Madeline. Associate producer. Well, the reason she ended up working on the film because she's in it. She makes the most incredible flower arrangements. And I'm like, if you could do this, you could probably help me edit the film. It's true. She's mother nature. So we sat down and she was able to tell me, frankly, because she saw a rough cut of the film. And she said, you know, your movie doesn't quite blah, blah, blah. And I and I listened and I said, so what do I. So she sat with me through the rest of the winter and we she helped me finish it. And all these other editors, including an Emmy Award winning editor, he got fired. He didn't make the cut. Because he can't arrange flowers. He's a great technician, but he doesn't get this. Talk to so, me about how painting has influenced your acting. Well, what's real interesting is I moved from Los Angeles eight years ago, and I had already started to paint because I dropped out of show business with no intention of ever going back into acting. I was done. What I learned, what made me able to come back and actually do a film is the methodology of painting. I found a system of construction, and of discipline that really helped me be able to construct a film in the same way I construct a painting. So you go for the big picture, you do the under, you know, the skeleton of it, you do the composition, and then you look at it and you go, that doesn't quite fit there. And the painting doesn't want that scene or that flower or that whatever that thing is, and you take it out and maybe you put it somewhere else where you'd put it aside. And, you know, that means you got to white it out because I'm a painter. I don't paint computers. You eventually end up with something when God goes, and that's when you stop. Now I have trouble finishing, but here's the fun thing too. This guy, <laughs> poorly framed, this took an hour. Okay. What? This Only an hour? hour? I'm sorry, two hours, two hours to do this painting because my niece was over. She's a brilliant artist. And we picked this same subject and said, okay, ready, set, go. And we both painted our hearts out without thinking. She came up with something extraordinary. I came up with this and I said, this is good. I'll frame it. But without thinking, and, and my process is intuitive. I pay with my, this. So I, I get, my head gets in the way. It doesn't come out. You have all these little tentative, oh, I don't know what I'm, you know, brush strokes. So I just went with it. There's no thinking. I, I paint better when I'm on the phone, when the critic isn't going, you suck. You should have got a job. Are you you're Jewish, aren't you? I'm Jewish. The Christians have the nativity scene. We have the negativity scene. So what are you doing with your life? You know, <laughs> it's not yeah, so much. I'm deeply, for sure. deeply Jewish. You're deeply is that, Jewish. Is that your dad? Yeah, I have a wicked Jewish soul. I'm not religious. But is that your dad with the hat? That's my dad with the hat. Doesn't he have a Hollywood look? Yeah, I like his look. He's cool. I'd love to meet him. Does he ever come on the show? Other he than the just responds after. So you can ask him a question at the end. And then when I give you the full segment, you'll get to hear my daddy. You look like a world-class mensch, dad. He is. I think you'll like him. I do like him already. The hat's very, very cool. My oh, grandfather yeah. wore hats like that too. His dad. Yeah, not everybody can wear that hat. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it's cool. You know who you are as a man who's self-possessed. And that's you over there behind you? Is that you? That's me. Cool. I like your thing. So I want to flip the interview and tell me how you got into podcasts. 
Yeah, well, my dad has always been my number one cheerleader, number one fan. He actually always wanted his own show. And I co-hosted a show about four or five years ago. And that kind of like re-wet my appetite for wanting to do something like this. Then I worked for a top podcaster or two, booking guests and co-hosting shows. I worked in radio in college. And during the pandemic, I was like, you know, I like my dad's advice. Maybe I should share that with the world. You know, it's helped me a bunch. So I bet it could help other people. That was kind of the idea. And also my very first job out of college was the Jerry Springer show. So in the beginning, I kind of thought, I was like, I could book crazy, outrageous stories. And I've kept in touch with a lot of interesting people. And I feel like people might be interested in that. So in the beginning, I was like thinking the shock and awe type of stories. And then instead of Jerry weighing in at the end with his final thought, it would be my dad. But what's interesting is the turn it took was that a lot of people have daddy stories, either daddy issues or inspirational fathers or lack of father. And so the turn of the show kind of really went towards the daddy angle. Like it. I think that's very bold and original because there's no doubt that the the reactions you get from your guests are very varied and they're very sensitive personal issues. They're all daddy issues. We all have them and they end up costing us because we need therapy. And that's the truth. It's not all puppies and rainbows with my dad, but I told you the good stuff. But you really have insightful questions and your presence and everything really adds up to a wonderful, comfortable show. I feel like, you know, I don't feel put on the spot. I don't feel like, you know, you're digging in. Somebody I was being interviewed on the radio said, so you're going to kill yourself like Robin did? (laughs) All his pals were laughing. I'm like, why would you even ask me that? That's a horrible question want me to would you prefer that you read about it tomorrow because we could do that we could do a data plato thing a data plato thing well and i never talked to them again i I was going to have them in the movie and do a scene in a disc jockey sort of a studio thing and i said not these guys now why would you do that just the point is to shock people to get the ratings or whatever but it's so vile okay so that kind of leads me to can you tell me a little bit about the dark side of hollywood I mean, I live there. Even when Nanny Yvonne was on my show, she talked about what she thought Hollywood was going to be like and what it actually was for her. Yeah, Rena, the thing is, you're not sure. There's a whole jack-in-the-box thing where oh, this is going to be cool. And then you're screwed. We didn't, we're not going to keep our word. Too bad you signed that freaking thing. You know, and it's jerk in the box. That's why I don't let anybody touch my film. That's why I didn't go to Hollywood with an incredible idea that I had for this film, because I knew either it's never going to get made, it's going to be tied up in the court, or some shark is going to get a hold of it and rip me off of it, or the wrong people will make it in the wrong way. And even if it's a total turd, it's my turd. And it's not a turd. It's not a turd. <laughs> I love that so much, though. I mean, you, do you learned how work. to edit. You listened to your spirit. You were guided. You were taken over by it. I mean, I admire that so much. Well, and good for you if it's your turd. So Hell yeah. <laughs> no, that is honestly, so bold, though. Yeah, but look, I've done a, I had a sitcom. I was the Zima guy. Remember the Zima stuff? I used to drink those Zimas. Those were good. Oh, they were pretty good. I drank a lot of them after they fired me too. Hollywood almost killed me, but I made a decision to be in it. So I don't blame anybody. I don't hold anybody accountable. We're good. 
I just don't want them to have their hands on it. And I, I was approached by people about being Robin and there's film festivals. And to be honest with you, I'm doing my own thing. Hey folks, I'm the distributor of my own film. It's possible I could sink my own ship, but it's also possible that I will figure this thing out. And right now the attention we're getting on TikTok and Facebook is pretty intense because of that drive, what we talked about, how you learn how to just get up in the morning, make a TikTok, and dig into your old Carol Burnett scene and throw that up there or whatever and make it happen and, and, and then sit back and trust and have faith that you're going to be okay. Even if it flops, you'll be fine. That is so inspiring. That makes me want to just be bolder than I'm already being. You know, I mean, you're very bold, but you could go wherever your heart takes you, you know, go past what you think you can do and, and be willing to make a fool of yourself because if you're not, you'll never know. I'm a world-class fool. Ask any of my pals. <laughs> She's... <laughs> Are you a dad? Yes, I have a 30-year-old kid. What does legacy mean to you? You know what's really important is like, I want to ask you the same question. Well, some of my heroes include Van Gogh, who made Starry Night. Mozart, Monet, musicians, Eric Clapton, the Beatles. Oh, yeah. Great writers, great actors, Marlon Brando. Okay, so, and I try to do this through this film. My mission is to do what I'm asked to do, to somehow bring people together in some healing way with some sort of art piece that when people look at it, it affects them in a profound way that will carry them to a better place. And that would be my mission. I feel like what I've done already, I could retire and just go to bed and eat crap and watch Netflix. Because I Hell yeah. You really could. I'm so tired, Rena, from this mission. <laughs> this film is just four years of like trying to do. And Robin has a mission in the film too. But my legacy, I think, will have to do with with that. Like, how did you? What good did you do? It used to be, what can I get? But you know, it's like now, it's like. And I know a lot of people are like, I want to give. I'm going to be a giver. But no, if there's some powerful piece of work that you do that really affects people, like Greta, you know, Greta, the girl who's the, the environmental girl, she's a big, and John Stewart, big, big idol of mine. It's, it's not envy, it's just admiration for taking the next step into influencing people to do some good. Good is really a higher power. It's, it's sort of like, if you don't get God, you know, try good, give good a shot, be good. When did you start? leaning into that, trying to be good, like testing that a little bit? Well, I think it came with sobriety because, you know, I was told in that spiritual awakening that I wasn't bad. I was just sick. Mm. And let's go to work. And the work ethic is very strong. I got a strong work ethic. So to do good means to do no harm, A, and then take it to another level, which is how can you nourish people? How can you be part of a system of healing? So I've created something called the Homegrown Peace Forum, which is very small right now. And I'm not trying to make a big splash, but it, it's something we do every week for the most part. And it's a small group of people. It's a field tank. It's a think tank. And what we do is discuss humanitarian issues and social issues and try to come up with solutions where we can go out in the world and do a little better towards each other. And sometimes it gets you know, environmental. Sometimes it gets more business. Like, what do you do at work to make it a better environment for people? What do you do at home? How do you keep the peace at home? How do you have a, a conflict without being hurtful? You know, how are you treating nature? What's your relationship with the world? 
all this stuff, we talk about it and it becomes this sort of group therapy thing sometimes. But that to me is, is part of it. And the other thing I want to tell you that I'm working on after all the stuff is that I think that I have a shamanic, my therapist says that I have a shamanic base. I do some spiritual healing in my own body. I've managed to create some interesting results from really focusing and visualizing. I work with an imaginary shaman um, who's this old African dude who smiles a lot. He's brilliant with his hands. And I have visions. I've had visions of a painting. Years ago, I had a vision of a painting that made me weep. And I was like, God, what is that? And I was told it's my own work way down the line. Keep at it. That's amazing. Spiritual experiences, man. Better than drugs. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Imagine though, like, if God would do that for everyone, give you that potential. Like, you know, people talk about you have this infinite potential. Like imagine getting a vision of actually seeing something that you would love to create. It was interesting because I was had just started painting and just getting sober. And I, I had started to have visions and I saw it. And it was like the work of a child, but a brilliant child. It's beautifully simple. And I could, I didn't know what it was. And the only thing that I heard was that that was what you're going to be doing. Stay with it. I don't claim any particular brilliance or intelligence, but I do think when anybody taps into the creative spirit of the universe, sometimes it takes an effort. Like you got to stop, you got to put the remote control down and get in touch with that innermost part of you. That's, that's good, creative, loving, adventurous, and see what comes of it. I think we all have it. Honestly, I'm not special. I'm just particularly interested in seeing where it goes. So you said you were going to flip the question on me and I don't feel like, I don't feel like I've come to that answer. I honestly, at this point in my life, like feel like my legacy is more of carrying on for my father and for my grandmother and for people that came before me. When I was born, it was five generations And my grandparents have been like second parents to me. And my dad is like my right hand. He believes in legacy more than I do. I wish I had the faith that he has that the reason we're here is for continuance. Like he is so sure of that. I'm still trying to figure out if that's really what I believe. Well, what is it that you believe strongly? What drives you? I do believe that I'm an artist. Yeah, you are. I I do believe that that lights me up. Creativity lights me up. I have experienced that more than once. When I was little, I did actually dream of living and working in Hollywood. And I, I did have a period where I did that. But like you, when I lived there, there were other parts of me that didn't feel fulfilled. I actually became religious living in LA, which was really interesting. Yeah. Like I'm covering my hair right now. It's the wig. I felt like in some ways, and and there were people that I worked with now that are executive producers, you know, I could have continued on that path. Like I was a producer, I was a post-production supervisor. I worked on major network shows. I could have continued in that direction. But after working on all those shows, I still felt empty. And I was like, there's got to be more. And so I started, I I took a trip to Israel. I kind of had a spiritual awakening. I got into yoga. I quit smoking. I started eating healthy. You know, I did the whole LA thing. Hold on a second. Tell me about your spiritual awakening. Can you explain or describe that? Yeah, I went on this trip to Israel. This is so interesting. And my roommate on the trip, she was an executive producer too. And I saw her walking to the wall, to the Western wall. And I was like, I don't know what she's experiencing, but I want some of that. 
that's literally what it was. I felt like she was getting answers that I wasn't getting. I felt like she had direction that I didn't have. Was it a sense of competitiveness or a deep desire to, because I remember that feeling like, why do they get to have it? And I, I want this. Why can't yeah. I have it? You know what was else that- is interesting? When I moved to LA, my mom, of course, from Kentucky, gave me one phone number of a cousin. Right. And this guy got turned on to being more observant through the Kabbalah Center when that oh, was trendy. Right. And he invited me over to his house for a Shabbos meal. And I remember knocking on his door for a Passover Seder and he was dressed the part. I mean, him and his Ooh. wife, she looked like Nefertiti and he had a Hanukkah <laughs> napkin on his head and he was in a full-on <laughs> costume. I was like, this is fun. Like I haven't experienced Passover like this. All right. Like he was inviting people from Venice beach from all walks of life. And it felt nice. so non-judgmental. And they were going around the table talking about what they wanted to be free from. I was like, Oh, this is oh, cool. LA can be like that. <laughs> it can. Yeah. And so that to me felt more spiritual than anything that I had actually experienced. It was less of a fashion show and a Vanna white act of here's the Torah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I hear and you. I was like, oh, these people are actually like thinking about things differently. And, you know, when I, I was such a workaholic, like I just wanted to climb the ranks of Hollywood and work in TV and be cool. I was a small town girl, wanted to prove myself. Mm. But when I started sitting at these Shabbos tables and unplugging from the universe, that changed something in me to the point where I have kept the Sabbath for the last 16 years. That's amazing. I unplug. It started with unplugging. Well, it's a great idea for one thing. It's practical. Yeah, I honestly feel like the entire world needs to unplug. But yeah, I started unplugging and not being available to my higher ups, to my friends, to anyone. Getting off the grid. Getting off the grid, kind of. Getting off the grid for 24 hours a week and realizing that the world is not going to come out of orbit if I am not available. And that was so freeing. Do you think people could do that? Let's just take all these TikTokers, right? Of which I'm one. I sleep with my phone and my computer. It's within reach when I- Oh yeah. I had to take my phone out of my room for mental health. (laughs) Mental health reasons because it's addictive for one thing. So addictive. I am a social media holic. If I don't take it out of my room, I'll stay up till three in the morning. But do you think that people out of necessity or out of maybe even potential spiritual awakening out of necessity- Say, look, we're really caught up in this other world. It's not even the real world. Yeah, it's not. And we're hurting ourselves. We're possibly making ourselves extinct, potentially. Yeah. With this precept. And what are we really doing on TikTok? What we're doing today is actually what the best of the internet is. Exchanging ideas, speaking in spiritual terms, discussing enlightenment, discussing betterment, discussing goodness, art. Legacy. Legacy. Lineage. Lineage. What are we here for? Right. What does and it what boil we, down to at the end and, of our life? And what are we going to do about it? That's what the Peace Forum's about. We could talk for hours. Yeah. But when you and I leave here today, it's a challenge. What are we going to do about what we talked about? What solutions, not that we talked about problems, but you said something about the Sabbath. This is something I had desperately used. Just shut down for 24 hours, reboot all of this, my brain, my recharge, my body you know, really do it religiously so that you can't, I don't mean like the toilet paper thing, but I, you know, I could go along with a lot of what kosher means, what, what observing the Sabbath means. 
I make my own rules with sobriety. What's comfortable is, you know, if somebody pushes me into a thing like, you know, you don't eat whatever cake. Well, like, I love cake, man. Don't well, hold on. I gave up alcohol, drugs, cigarettes and gambling. I'm going to have freaking cake. So I, I do my own thing. I make up my but, own rules religiously. I mean, right. I covered my hair for 15 years and now I take it off. Want to see? Yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. Now you wear that to cover your head. Mm-hmm. Oh, there you that go. That a nice little haircut. That really works. And then, uh, either way, either way, they're both very beautiful, natural looks. Thank you. And it's different too. It's different from each other. There's a different essence. You feel closer to me now? I didn't say that. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't feel, but since my girlfriend's in the next room, I'm going to sort of be cool here. Um, <laughs> I know but it's, it's a not, modesty thing. I've had well, people say to me, you'll be religious. When, when you, say, oh, close you don't to, oh. wear open-toed shoes and a wig. But for me, I didn't come to being more observant or spiritual or religious by those kind of rules. For right. me, it was, I have experienced a certain level of fame, a certain level of success, and I feel empty. How can I add more meaning to my life? How can I take a step back and try right. to elevate yeah. my life? How can I get out of this rigmarole, this hamster wheel and do something different one day a week? How can I eat different one day a week? How can I eat something special? How can I talk about something more elevated? How can I better myself one day a week? That's what it started with. And I think if you can remember that, then you can grow from there. Well, you got it from experience too, because I don't know if you had this experience, but it seems that you did. Hollywood, fame. Oh God. It's didn't a trap. It didn't make me happy. It didn't. It made me tired and freaked out. I'm on the way to the Tonight Show in a limo going, ah, <laughs> that's not success, man. It's walking around the woods in this lake where I live and listening to the trees sway and the leaves and watching the leaves coming down yesterday, taking the canoe out, laughing with my loved ones, finding those moments on stage where I really connect with what it is I'm trying to do and commune with the audience, the work makes me happy. All that other stuff, fame, attention. I like attention, but it's the kind of overwhelmingness and it steals your freedom and I can't do it anymore. When I make this film, I'm gone. I'm going to disappear. I'm going off the grid. You can hit the button, buy the film. Once a week, we'll pack up the DVDs. I don't know how many we'll sell, but I will get out of this thing, this limelight, this thing with a constant pressure and and being in the middle of something. And I don't know if this film's going to make, I called three uh, news stations here in Boston. We may do interviews. It doesn't make me happy. It makes more, it takes away from, but I do it myself. I can't look at anybody and say, well, you made me. No, I did this. I wanted this. If I'm going to make a movie, I want you to see it. And I want you to see it, guys. I want you to see this movie. I did it for you. And I did it for Robin and the people that love him because I think Robin wanted me to. I asked him, I said, what about your wife? You know, is she going to like sue me? Is she going to be upset about this? And he said, I'll handle her. It's okay. I got this. So I suppose he whispered in her ear, let him go. Let him do this. This is me and Robin's thing. Whatever Robin is, a make-believe friend, or there's that idea that maybe great spirits don't die and they find other vessels to inhabit like hermit crabs. Sometimes you don't want to know the mystery is good as a mystery. The story is more interesting if you don't understand or you don't get the mystery. The mystery of God. What if God showed up? You go, oh, well, there's God. Oh, that's over. I mean, the mystery of faith is wonderful. It's better as a mystery. 
I have my own philosophies about what happened and what's still happening. When I get on stage tomorrow night, Robin's going to be there in some way, shape or form and experience the laughter. I feel him having experiences through me at certain moments. And that's cool. He's still around. But what I want to leave here with is this idea that love defeats hate. And that's the message of the movie. Acts of love are very powerful and they have the power to overthrow hate. And that's my mission to, to bring that about through this film. Can you channel Robin? Like, do you feel like you have powers like a medium or anything? Some. I think it's empathy. First of all, I'm a good impersonator. I can do impressions pretty good. Oh, yeah. This is something else. Though. This is not an impression. Something comes over me and I either deny it or I get out of the way and I let it flow. And when I let it flow, I'm channeling. It's like any art. If you get out of the way and open yourself up to the muse, to the whatever's trying to flow through you, that's what Robin did. He was channeling characters. He channeled all kinds of stuff. Maybe he started talking that you don't even know where he's going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, baby. Oh, I don't know. It's okay. I didn't even want to do this today. It's all right. Oh, don't worry, dear. It's okay. Yeah. You're going to be okay. You know, I don't know. And it's not because I'm doing it on purpose. It's because it's just get out of the way now. Please. No, no, don't do this to me. It's okay. We'll just do this now. Oh, yeah. I want to be on the show too. Yay. Don't be afraid. It's okay. Wow. That's a beautiful painting. Thank you. Well, this is featured in the film. This is my painting of him, my little tribute. That's really what happens. It's not a, it's not a parlor trick. When it happens without my permission is when it's really channeling. When it's like in the middle of a thing and I'll just, I, I was in a bar and everybody else is talking and holding court and I'm sitting there like this. And all of a sudden I feel Robin go, I want to turn, please. I'm like, no, this is not your night. Oh, come on. And I just felt him in me rising up. And, and, and I lost myself completely from time to time. One of the time I was rehearsing in the woods, I, I was walking in the woods and I said, this is where we rehearse. We go out in the woods where nobody could hear us. I said, Robin, you want to rehearse? And he goes, yeah, I'll take it from here. And I'm like, what? excuse me? Yeah, I got it. And that really, I found that interesting because it's like, what do you mean I got it? What do you mean I'll take it from where? What am I going to do? I don't know. You can watch. So what I recognized, and I was completely free of myself. Everything I did from that moment, every gesture, every facial thing, every vocal thing. Right now, my voice is a little bit raw. I don't have it anymore right now. Yeah, surely. Was Robin. And I just observed myself transforming. And I was cool with it. But I also thought, am I disassociating? I'm a problem. Get a medication. And I wasn't. I was just allowing that to happen. That which is perhaps natural or supernatural. That which is spiritual. That which is whatever it is. I deliberately put people in the movie that say it's a hoax. Because Ooh, you have to I love that. Hey, there's people that think I'm, you know, it's a big freaking magic trick and i can they have to have their say i don't fight them you can think whatever you want i'm not going to sit here and defend myself i don't have anything to prove i'm not going to prove that i was possessed by robin williams that's dumb i'm just saying this is what happened whatever the truth is it happened this is very real to me that's the journey i think that is so cool that you had empathy towards the haters too it's not empathy it's acceptance and, and understand it it's not as much haters as people going, I see what you're doing here. Or doubters. Doubters. There's haters too. I've, I've seen them. There's another very talented impressionist out there, Jamie Costa, who does Robin very well. He's young. And he made a big splash. Millions of people saw it. And I give him credit 
for doing that. His thing is different than my thing. You know, I, I wish him all the best. He knows about me, I'm yeah. sure. I know about him. He may play Robin in a movie. I don't play Robin in this movie. I play myself in a version of myself that's very taken with Robin and perhaps possessed or somehow harboring the spirit or wanting to so bad that he believes it's true, which is delusional. It's the guy who comes and shows up and says, I'm Jesus Christ. I'm the Messiah. Trust me. I don't know. Is it, are you? <laughs> Give him a dollar. He'll go away. <laughs> I think I've met that guy in LA. <laughs> yes, you did. He's on Hollywood Boulevard. He works that beat. I've met him too. He got a big cross. Anyway, I got to go. I got to get on the road to Delaware. Roger, thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. You're amazing. I you cannot too. wait to watch your movie November 1st, right? Well, yes. Do you know where to get it? Tell me. It's beingrobinthemovie.com. Okay. Then you, you go there, you press the button, DVD, or just e-link, and you own it. And that's how it goes. I would, yeah, I mean. I, Can I, I watch this with my children? Well, how old are your children? 14, 11, 10, and 3. No. So the 3-year-old, yes. The 14-year-old, <laughs> yes. The 11-year-old, no. The other one, sure. This is some naughty words in it and some concepts that may be. <laughs> you, you look at it first, and then if you think. You know, I did that with my kid too. I edited, I was like, you got to leave the room for two minutes or I shut it off and fast forward. And, blah, 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 blah. and then I tried to keep him away from Eminem and I couldn't. So he's totally corrupted by Eminem, but he's okay. When and are you coming to Texas? I was just there from two, three months ago. I went to Austin, Fort Worth. I was at Fort Worth. I did a gig there. It was fun. Great, great, great time. I loved it. Okay. I got to get through Delaware with this voice the way it is. I feel like what's his name? I can't think of that. The playwright. He was in Mrs. Doubtfire. He played Robin's brother. Oh, I'm so happy. Harry Firestein. You know who I'm saying. Can I get All you right, to do just a quick intro to the Better Call Daddy show? Oh, yeah. This is Roger Kabler. And you are really in for a treat because you have landed on the Better Call Daddy show. And you better watch this show today because it's awesome. Thank We're going to have a good time. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. So what did you think of being Robin? Well, isn't it interesting how Roger has the talent of sounding like or being able to impersonate famous people that he admires and can really feel connected to the part, not only if he's in a movie, but everyday life. I believe that that's true. I think that people that you look up to or people that you want to follow or imitate in some manner, that you can act or amplify your life by really following someone's example. And that's what part of the show is. The definition of legacy is really following generations of your own family, but it doesn't have to be just your family. It could be your community. It could be your synagogue. It could be your religion. It could be, which also came out in this episode, you get a spiritual connection at some point in your life where God can connect with you and make you carry on. And he does that through all the generations as well. Isn't it interesting that he had some issues with his father and made peace there? And he had to really find a way to make peace with himself and heal himself. And after the process of healing himself with his experiences and using his talents, it's what do you do next? How do you go forward with your life? How do you really contribute? You've got to be satisfied in healing yourself. You're able to 
then take that healing process to a higher degree. It's not necessarily where you have to suck up to other people, but if you can send a message, which is what I really loved about this show, if you can send a message that you can overcome your flaws or negativity or hatred, that goodness, that love can still win out at the end of the day. And the healing process can go beyond yourself, but you can be a guiding light to many others. And that's what the Jewish people are supposed to get that message. They're supposed to be a guiding light to the rest of the world and not be just self-centered and just chasing the buck or playing political angles and games. But we're supposed to let goodness and love shine out where we can one day hopefully have the type of interaction that you just had in this interview where you can talk about things and the meaning of things and be able to share that with people and show that there's infinite ways of improving yourself where you don't have to be hearing what others say. You want to learn from other people, but do your own thing. Develop your own mind. Develop your own feelings. Develop your own connections. I think it was a very meaningful show. Sounds like you liked it. I did like it. And it sounds like he wants to put me in a movie. <laughs> but you know what's funny about acting? Part that without that deep emphasis on feeling what the real life person is going through and participating and understanding all the variables of what that part is or what that person's going through means you have to do your homework. And if you can really feel it, it really helps in really being a good actor. There's a lot of people that are able to do that, where they can put themselves, someone else's shoes, and be able to learn how they walk, learn how they talk, learn what, what pleases them and what doesn't please them. But at the end of the day, I told you that's a sense of la-la land. You've got to still figure out how to wear your own shoes and fit in your own pants. If you truly want to be happy, you have to be able to do your own thing and be your own person. Yeah, I mean, I love that. And that's why he's doing his own movie. So he can have full control of it. Right. He's not afraid to fail. He's not afraid to fall down because he has fallen down before. So the point is, is that once you have fallen, he's learned a very important concept in life. He's learned how to pick himself up by the bootstrap and get back into the race or back onto the horse and take a good ride. Sometimes when you fall down, people are afraid to fall down. But once you have fallen, the, really the name of the game is to be able to pick yourself up by the bootstrap and get back on the horse and take that ride wherever it might take you. And that part of life also is showing that we have some humility, that we can be down, but it doesn't mean we have to be out. All part of the development of life. And let's be able to take that ride because we're putting our heart and soul in it and we're going to go for it no matter what and no matter what everybody else might say. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 